Thank you for being here. I uh, uh, had a chance to visit with some of you before we got started this morning, and I don't know what's going on in your world, and I don't know what's going on in your life. Uh, this world and our lives seem to go like this. And if you're like up here, then any Sunday school class we teach is going to be good. If you're down here, it just all depends on the class. And this class may not be necessarily the class that you think goes to folks down here, but I want to give you a word of encouragement, and that is this. In my life, regardless of where I've been, God's word has ministered to me. And I, I, I tell you this, I, I got to speak to a high school chapel class uh, out at Northland Christian a week or two ago. And I thought if I could tell anything to, to kids who are in high school, it's that regardless of what goes on in your life, the word of God is a constant. And you can always turn to it. And it will always give you encouragement because it will confirm to you our God who is there, who has chosen to reveal himself to us out of love. And that same love that says, I'm going to speak to you and reveal myself to you is the same love that holds you in the hollow of his hand. And that's true not only if you're in high school, that's true if you're pushing 90. It never changes. And the nice thing about God's word is we have access to it. And it hasn't always been that way. One of the neatest miracles in the Bible to me is on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon Peter and the other apostles. And the scriptures say that it's like tongues of fire over them. Let's pull the scripture up. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came to rest on each of the apostles. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. The first miracle of the church is God making sure that his message is heard by everybody in their own language. The tragedy of the church is for centuries that did not happen. A tragedy of the church is there are still corners of the globe where people do not have access to Scripture in their own language. But we do. And it's something we should be thankful for. Now, we've got to do a little poll as we get started. I assume everybody in here has a Bible that at some point or another they read. If not, come see me after class. We'll get you one. How many of you read the King James Version? A good bit of you. How many of you read the American Standard? Anybody? We got some American Standards? New American Standard? Revised Standard? NIV? Ah. There are tons more, but in the interest of getting through with class, I'm going to cut it off there. there. There's a message. There's, there's, all, there's a new Revised Standard Version. There's a new King James Version. There are countless versions that we'll be talking about. But the general scope of today, and this is a two-week class on the history of the English Bible, the general scope for today is to look generally at the development of the different kinds of Bibles. Next week, we're going to look at how do we know that these are good? How do we know they're authentic? 
How do we know that they're translating a valid text if we don't have the original writings that made up the Bible? How do we know which translations are better and which ones are worse? What are the advantages to one versus the disadvantages and advantages of another? That's next week. This week, though, we're going to look at generally the development of the English Bible itself. And the history of the English Bible is tied into the history of the English language. You with me? So we're going to spend about uh, five minutes of our class this morning just talking about the development of the English language itself because we can't understand the development of an English Bible without it. Let's step back in time before the development of English and ask a couple of basic questions and make sure everybody's been paying attention. The Old Testament was written in what two languages? Hebrew and Greek? Nope, not Greek. Aramaic. Very good. It was translated into Greek very early, but the original was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Aramaic is almost Hebrew. It's like a later development off of Hebrew, and it's the difference between maybe our English and the English of Shakespeare, or better yet, of Chaucer. That'd be a better illustration, Middle English. So, <clears throat> Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic. Second quiz. The New Testament was written in what three languages? Greek, Aramaic, and there's one little phrase in Latin. Um, so, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. Next, by the 300s, Greek is disappearing. Now, Greek is the language of the New Testament church's Bible. Paul quoted basically, almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively from the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The Greek fathers of the church quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament. Greek was the language, by and large, of the New Testament. The only place where it's got Aramaic is like where Jesus says, Lama, uh, uh, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. And then Matthew has to give the translation because that is Aramaic. Or, or when, uh, you know, a couple of other little phrases. But by the time we get to the 300s, Greek in the western part is disappearing. We don't have Greek really being spoken in Italy and in Germany and what's now France and Spain. It's, it's kind of off the map. And so there's a need that the western church recognizes to have a good coherent set of scripture in the language being spoken by the people. The language at that time is, for these people, Latin. And so there's a translation of the Bible that we call the Vulgate because it comes from vulgar. Now, that doesn't mean bad. That's Latin for common. It comes from common Latin, everyday Latin, the Latin of the people as opposed to classical Latin. And so everyday people Latin, the, the, the bishop of Rome at the time appoints a fellow named Jerome, and you can go back, and I've referenced this in our lessons because we studied this about a year ago, and, and appoints Jerome to translate the entire Bible into everyday Latin. And it's done. Latin is the language, and as we go into the 400s, you've got Greek being spoken in the eastern part. You've got Latin really being spoken in the western part. Now, there are still some unconquered lands where the native Germanic tribes live. And these are the people who speak Germanic tongues. These are the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes. And uh, these are the folks who, as we go into the 800s, have started conquering England. 
Meanwhile, Latin as a language over in the westernmost part is evolving into Spanish. By the 800s, the northern part of the Latin speakers have turned it into French. The southern part have turned it into Italian. These are called Romance languages because Latin was the language of the Romans. So those are the Romans. The language of the Romans was Latin as Latin develops into these other languages. And that's why if you read Spanish and French and Italian and Latin, you'll see almost all of the words are there. Now, we don't get many words from Latin. We do get some, and we'll discuss why and how. But um, uh, these are the languages being spoken. These are the Romance language. English is not considered by philologists as a Romance language. It's considered a Germanic language. Because what happened is these German tribes came over, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes, and they conquered England. And so they settled English and they spoke a language that philologists now called Old English. And in the 800s, there was a king of England, a king by the name of Alfred the Great. You can go see statues of him and, and things. Alfred the Great in the 800s actually takes part of the Bible, some out of the book of Acts and some out of the first five books of Moses. And uh, uh, he takes these uh, uh, passages and puts them into his law. Now, he is married to a Jute, but he's basically an Angle. And by the way, do you know why we call it Angle Land? England is what we now call it. But it comes from the Angles having settled it. It was Angle Land, England, is what we call it now. We speak English. The Angolish type of talking is where our name comes from. So Alfred the Great actually translates part of the Bible into his legal code, and, and that's the first translation we have into any kind of English at all. But what happens in 1066 is from uh, Normandy, a fellow named William the Conqueror. Normandy's that northern part of France. William the Conqueror, who speaks French, invades England and conquers it. That's why he's William the Conqueror instead of William the Loser. If he was William the Loser, we wouldn't even be talking about him. But because he's William the Conqueror, he conquers in 1066 England. And do you know what becomes the predominant language of England? French. French and Latin. And the church still does business in Latin. The courts do business in Latin and French. And this Norman invasion takes out Old English. And the little bit of English that remains is what uh, later is going to be called Middle English. Because it's, it's kind of a hybrid. It's got a little bit of French-Latin mixed in with it. But during this time period, the courts are speaking French and Latin in England. The common people are speaking what's called Middle English. And by common people, they didn't really have a middle class yet. That comes in with the Renaissance. What they've got are rich, courtly, citizen, really good, well-placed people. And then they've got the common people, the lower class, the swine herds, the farmers, the serfs. 
These are the people who speak English. So English is considered a, a not just rudimentary, but a, a distasteful, uncultured, unclassified, almost dirty language of primitive people, not of the sophisticates of society who speak in French and Latin. And this is the way business continues during this time period. This is still the way of business as we get into the 1380s when Wycliffe, who we studied, Wycliffe translates that Latin Vulgate into Middle English. One of the reasons people got so upset over it was Middle English was considered such a primitive and base language that it wasn't holy enough to be used for the scriptures. It didn't have a wide enough vocabulary to express the deep thoughts of God. If you want to express God's deepness and richness and revelation, you need a language that's suited to do it, and that's got to be Latin or French. So the thought was. So Wycliffe translates into Middle English passages like Luke 128. And uh, you'll pardon my spelling, I borrowed his. And the angel entered to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord be with thee. Blessed be thou among women. I mean, women. That's the way he translates it. This is Luke 1.28. This is a very significant passage. And it becomes more significant over the next 150 years in English translations of the Bible. It's significant because for the Catholic Church, this idea that Mary was full of grace is the idea that Mary herself had a fullness of grace that allowed Mary to dispense grace to people who came to her and asked for it. You follow what I mean? She so overflows with grace, she's full of grace. She's got boatloads of grace. She's got enough grace to give you some if you pray to her and ask for it. And so within Catholic doctrine at this point in time, the idea was you could go to Mary in your prayer and Mary would dispense out of her richness of grace the grace that you might need. You can get this translation from the Latin version of the New Testament. You don't get this from the Greek, but you can from the Latin. And Wycliffe, when he translates into English, he's translating from the Latin Vulgate that Jerome had translated in the late 300s. Okay, you with me? Here's another passage. In those days, John the Baptist came and preached in the desert of Judea. And said, do ye penance, for the kingdom of heaven shall nigh. Huh? Yes, the way some kids write today, she said, yeah. Um, <laughs> an English teacher down here for you in the back said, that's the way some of my kids write today. Um, you didn't know, they just are writing Middle English. Those are the really intelligent ones. She must teach in a gifted and intelligent school. Um, this was a huge passage. This was a, clearly a Latin translation because it, this is a kind of passage that taught that the clergy had a special ability and that people should come to the clergy to do penance. That's where they come and they confess their sins and the clergy says, okay, fine, do this, do this, do this. And penance is done. 
And this has become a ritual at this point in time in the Catholic Church. And this is one of the scriptures that's used for it. And you can get that out of the Latin. You cannot get that out of the Greek. But the Latin is the Bible that everybody's using at the time. It's the Bible that Wycliffe used when he translated the Latin Vulgate into Middle English, the language of the swine herds that should not be uh, even speaking such rich ideas. In 1407, this is after Wycliffe is dead, been dead for 20 some odd years, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury declares that it's illegal for anybody to own or make or use English scriptures. He says it just isn't good. He says it's a dangerous thing anyway because common uneducated people who get it may start reading the Old Testament and think polygamy's okay. So if people need to know about what the Bible says, they'll know about it because their priest will tell them or they'll be educated enough to read the Latin, in which event we don't have much to fear. And this is the way the English Bible was uh, uh, set aside. Copies of Wycliffe's Bible were burned. And this carries us forward into the 1520s. In the 1520s, we're now in the humanist movement. It's full-blown. Luther, a couple of years earlier, has nailed his 95 theses to the door. In 1504 or 5, uh, Erasmus has taken the Latin and, and, and put it in a book and published it next to the Greek original. And where he did, couldn't find a Greek original, he translated the Latin into Greek to make it in Greek so that people could look at the Greek. And so Tyndale comes, and he's a fellow there in England, and he wants to translate, and this time he wants an English Bible, but he doesn't want it coming from the Latin Vulgate. He wants to go back to the original scriptures to translate it. Tyndale goes to the Bishop of London and says, can I have permission to do this? The Bishop says, no. You do it, you die. So Tyndale says, well, it's important enough. I'm going to do it anyway. And Tyndale moves to Germany to do it from there. Tyndale in the 1520s attempts to do it, and he doesn't think much of the Catholic Church. And so when Tyndale's making his translation, he goes to great lengths to change the way certain words are translated, even from what Wycliffe had done. For example... Every time you see the Greek word ekklesia, which generally means church and is translated that way, like we would read in Philippians, it starts out, uh, Paul and Timothy uh, uh, to the church at Philippi. See, it's to the ekklesia. Instead of church, Tyndale uses congregation because that kind of sets it apart from the idea of the church, the Catholic church. Tyndale, every time he sees the word uh, episkopos, instead of translating it priest, he translates it elder. When he sees the word penance, you go to the Greek and you use the word repentance. Big difference. Penance is something you get told by the priest to do for your sins. Repentance is a, a state of the heart where you're sorrowful for what you've done and you repent before God. And so Tyndale does this. He translates the Bible into English. Um, we've got copies of what he's done. Here is, uh, I've blown up that center part so we can read it a little bit better. Um, the, uh, the New Testament, okay, as it was written and caused to be right by them which, that's H-E-R, those two little slashes means, that's like our dash today. 
So back then they didn't have to do it in between syllables. You could do it in the middle of a word. You probably have students that do this too. So that's H-E-R continued D-E. That's heard. People who heard it, Y-T. Um, to whom also, now you'll have to excuse that, that thing that looks like an F, it was up there in Testament too. That's the way if, if it's in the middle of a word, an S was written. Um, to whom also uh, 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 our Savior, S-A-V-E-O-U-R-E, our Savior, see those two things that continue Savior, Christ Jesus commanded that they should, P-R-E, continued, A-C-H-E, preach it unto all creatures. So this was it. This was Tyndale's Bible, and Tyndale produces it. He, this is a copy out of the first page of Matthew, the Gospel of St. Matthew. When he does it, he's translating from Greek and Hebrew. He's translating from originals, the original language, let me say it that way, not from the translation of that done by Jerome in 380. And so, for example, that Matthew passage that we looked at a few moments ago, he translates it this way. In those days, John the Baptist came and preached in the wilderness of a jury saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. That's the one that earlier it said, do penance. See, so for the Catholic Church, this is not a happy development. Do penance means go to the priest, confess your sins, and let the priest give you a fine or a chore to do to make up for your sin. Repent means say, God, I repent. I'm sorrowful. Big difference. But that's the difference in the translation. Uh, Tyndale uh, uh, is arrested. He's convicted after a trial for heresy. Uh, he is uh, suffocated and then burned. Um, prior to his death, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was written about 30 years later, records his last words as saying, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And God does. 1535, 10 years later, Miles Coverdale is a fellow in England who translates the Bible into English again. But he uses the old Latin. He doesn't go back to the Greek and Hebrew originals. When he translates it into English, he does something politically smart. He dedicates his translation to King Henry VIII. That gets him muku favors. You know, who's going to destroy this? All right? It's from the Latin, so it takes care of some of these problem scriptures, and it's dedicated to Henry VIII. Happy times are here again. That's the Bible that Henry VIII says, we need to put one of these in every church. I think I have a slide later on that actually shows a picture of Henry VIII uh, uh, of the, the uh, title page of this, and it's got Miles Coverdale put on the title, Henry VIII handing out Bibles to, to people. It's a, this engraving. So that goes on. Meanwhile, we've got Calvin. If you've been in our class recently, you know Calvin's got Geneva really pushing the Reformation movement. And over there in Geneva, they're printing Bibles in most every language they can get their hands on. In 1560, they produce a translation from Hebrew and Greek into English. The Geneva Bible, it's called. 
And I mean it lays it out there. So, for example, Coverdale does, uh, uh, from the Latin, this is the fellow we just talked about who got, you know, dedicates it, King Henry VIII. He translates this Luke passage, and the angel came unto her and said, Hail thou, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. It's the same thing that Wycliffe had done when he did his Latin translation into English. Mary is full of grace, so Mary's got grace to give those who seek her out. Okay? Here's what the Geneva Bible says. And the angel went unto her and said, Hail thou that art freely beloved. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. The idea, and this is from the Greek originals, the idea is not that Mary's loaded with this grace that she can then give out, but that she's full of grace in the sense that she's fully loved. God has loved her fully. And that takes out the theological basis from this passage for Mary being able to dispense grace as people seek her intervention in their life. Um, here's my Coverdale picture. This is the one, this is the Coverdale. That's King Henry. I blow it up a little bit here. See, that's him with his little King Henry VIII stuff. And this is him handing out Bibles. He's handing out a Bible there. He's handing out Bibles there. You do that, you get your book printed. Mm -hmm. Now, we started this looking at a slide where I said, remember French and Latin's being spoken here because of the Norman invasion? You all remember that slide? Let me tell you what's happened at this point. England's been in a 100-year war with France. French has really dropped out of vogue in England. You speak French now, you're a traitor. Okay? So by the 1500s, the courts and church are speaking English and Latin, not French and Latin. And the common people are now speaking what's been called early modern English. This is the time of William Shakespeare. This is the time we were looking at last week when we talked about Queen Elizabeth who tried to chart the middle road with the Church of England between the Catholics and the Protestants. This is the time when the Geneva Bible is being produced in mass volumes. I've brought one for you. I brought a public a Geneva Bible that was made in 1599. You're welcome to come up and look at it after class. Be very delicate with it, though. Um, this, is, uh, this is the Bible that's being used, and this is the Bible that's out there. This is the Bible that Shakespeare used. This is the Bible that uh, the pilgrims took to America. This is the Protestant Bible that's being produced because it's not just a Bible, it's got notes. Now, Queen Elizabeth dies, and, uh, oh, that's the Bible of Shakespeare. Sorry, he had, he's a publicity hound. He had to get in there. Um, when Queen Elizabeth dies, James I takes the throne. He's, he's uh, uh, the king of Scotland at the time, and he comes down. He's James VI in Scotland, but he's the first James on the British throne, so for British purposes, he's James I, okay? They're related through going back up the old tree. Henry VII, I think, his great-grandmother was his sister or something. I don't know. But, yeah, Mary Stewart, anyway. He, bottom line is, it's in your lesson. If you care a whole bunch about British monarchy and the way it passes, then you got that freebie. Um, I will tell you this, though. Elizabeth was the virgin queen. She never had any offspring. 
So they go back above her lineage to get the new king. And James I takes the throne. Now, James I detests the Geneva Bible that everybody's using. He does not like it at all. Because the Geneva Bible is not written by a bunch of people who love kings. It's written by a bunch of Protestant reformers. And so it's got notes. It's got notes, for example, one passage that really galled him is right here in the book of Daniel. Daniel's told to do, follow the king's command. Daniel doesn't do it. Ultimately, Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. Does he get eaten? No. And the point is made by the Geneva writers. My just cause and uprightness in this thing in which I was charged is approved by God. For Daniel disobeyed the king's wicked commandment in order to obey God. And when he did so, nothing happened to him. No injury came. So King James reads this and he says, you know, people are going to be reading this Bible. And this says that if I'm telling them to do something that they think's wrong by God, they don't have to do it and they don't have to fear the consequences. This is a very bad Bible. We got to come up with something better. And so, at the same time, this whole ruckus is going on of is the country going more Protestant or not and all of the rest. Bottom line is, King James, for a number of different reasons, buys himself some time and basically says, We're going to get 54 translators to produce an English Bible from the Hebrew and Greek, but it's going to be one that, that has minimal notes, minimal commentary, and one that I like. Let's make it more king-friendly because I am God's appointed king and I'm also head of the church. So there. And in 1611, the King James Version is authorized for printing. Now, um, there are certain printers that are designated as, uh, well, there's one. <laughs> one printer family that's designated as the king's printer. And only that family has the authority to print anything that the king publishes and puts out. No one else is allowed to do it. That is the authorized printer. When we talk about the King James being the authorized version, it doesn't mean that the king said, I authorize this version. It does mean that this is the version that only an authorized printer is allowed to print. There was a copyright that didn't run for just a little while. It ran for perpetuity. Actually, until the mid-1900s, only designated people were allowed, supposedly, to print the King James Version. It's authorized for printing. Um, if we look at the beginning here, we blow it up a little bit. Here's what it says. It's containing the Old Testament and the New. It's newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translation diligently compared and revised. When it's published, it's published. Uh, here's a page out of it, the page that starts out with the Epistle Paul. It's got two columns for the text. Almost every King James Version you ever see is going to have two columns of text. To this day. The chapters are in Roman numerals, but the verse numbers are not. They're in normal numerals. There are notes at the start of each chapter, very brief notes. There are little notes in the margin, but those are notes that just are needed if you need help translating something. If a word's been inserted that doesn't, isn't in the original language, but it's needed for the English to make sense, they would italicize that word. Um, no pictures. You have pictures on the very front and you have woodcuts for the first letter of each chapter. But no pictures. Now, for the exclusive publisher, there are big bucks to be made. 
because no one else is allowed to print this. He's the only one, his family, the Robert Barker family, and they do it. Uh, here's a 1633 run of the book, 22 years later, printed at London by Robert Barker, printer to the king's most excellent majesty. Only the, eventually, uh, Oxford was given permission and Cambridge and Edinburgh were given permission. And then eventually, the Barker family sold their rights to publish it to others. But this continued, and, and this was the way it was done. Now, other booksellers want to be able to make money off of this, right? Kind of frustrating. So ingenuity starts kicking in. And in the 16 to 1800s, options start appearing in the Bible, the English Bible. Okay? A picture Bible. Didn't, King James doesn't have pictures. So these guys would go to the King James printer, they would buy the print run, and then they would go to bind it, but before they bound it, they would insert pictures. And then they could sell it as a picture Bible. And they could avoid the copyright. And so you'll see these starting to appear. You'll see family Bibles where they'd say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we put a family tree in here? We'll put a chart for deaths and births and marriages. And by adding that, it's a family Bible. We're not transgressing the copyright. And we'll reproduce the King James that way. Or we'll put more commentary stuff in it and we'll call it a commentary. Or uh, in America, um, after 1776, it's really hard to like, get them to ship us their Bibles. So the U.S. Congress just says, while generally we want to always honor copyrights, the Bible's too important a book, so print away, boys. <laughs> and that happens. Here's a 1635 Bible where they'd cut up the text. They'd literally, they'd buy the text from the approved printer, and they would cut it with scissors, and they would put it where they wanted it with the pictures. I say cut it with scissors. They cut it with scissors. 1700s, here's a copy of a commentary where they just have real little notes down at the bottom. Not a lot, just enough to excuse the copyright law and say it's a commentary. So you got your King James Version up there. Yeah, you got your commentary down there. Then what came into vogue in the 17 and 1800s, printing improved, and they'd start making real little Bibles. Here's one from 1817. King James Version, but real, real small. And of course, this is having to be made here in America. 1817 to avoid the copyright problems, but that's done. Um, 1781, here's a copy of a page from Philadelphia in uh, 1781, just totally published with disregard of the British copyright. Um, here's a copy of uh, one of the, the picture Bibles put out by Harper's. They published a lot and they put little pictures throughout it. Now, in 1870, the Church of England says, we need to revise the King James. Lots has happened. We've got better originals now. We'll talk about this next week. A fellow named Constantine Tischendorf has just discovered this new Bible uh, in, in the desert down there in the Middle East. And, and we've got new Bible, old Bible, excuse me. Um, we've got all this basis now for a better, and, and languages change and all. So, in 1870, the Church of England says we're going to authorize revising the King James Version. We got some Americans who are going to help us. And the 
English Revised Version is printed in 1885. The American Standard Version, which has American English in it, is done in 1901. And that's where the American Standard came from. It was a revision of the King James, done with the Church of England and American scholars. Um, in 1946 to 51, the American Standard's redone again, and it becomes what's now called the Revised Standard Version. What we're going to soon see after that are a number of different translations. The New American Standards put out by the Lachman Foundation uh, uh, in uh, the 1970, early 70s. Uh, the New International Version comes out in the late 70s. We've got the New Revised Standard Version, King James. Then we've got individual people who are doing it. Moffat did a version, James Moffat, back in the 20s and 30s. J.B. Phillips did one. Uh, Peterson did one called The Message. Uh, there are paraphrases that are coming out instead of translations where they don't translate word by word. They try to get the concept that's there and put it into an American or an English concept. These are, are what's done then. Now, next week as we refocus on a lot of these issues, I want to do it with some of the following. Why are there so many different translations? Uh, which one is best? What are the pluses and minuses of each? How do we know the text is reliable? Um, whoops, I didn't animate my points for home. Sorry, you get them all at one time. I've got three minutes to talk to you about them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to turn them off. Because I want to tell you this. God is a communicator. He spoke the world into existence. When Jesus comes to walk on earth, John writes that Jesus was the Word of God, made flesh who dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. When, when God wants to get to Moses, He talks to Moses. When God gives law to His people, God writes the first law on tablets of stone. God is a communicator, and he made us in his image. So we communicate. And I can stand up here and I can talk to you. And I can stand up here and I can tell you things. Do we think for a moment that a God who is a communicator, who made us in his image, would not want to communicate to us? Doesn't it make sense that God himself, he's not going to make us in his image, he's not going to be a communicator and then be silent to us. And he's not silent to us. He does communicate. And people have given their lives, literally given their lives, to make sure we have an ability to read God's revelation so that we don't operate out of superstition so that we don't operate based upon what he said or she said, God meant or wanted. So that God's Holy Spirit can work through us. And the shame of the American church is that so many of us have these books and leave them on our shelves. And do not spend time in them. Something that people have given their lives for to make sure we've got. And I'd rather watch TV. 
And I want to urge you to do something. I'm not telling you never to watch TV again. There are too many good shows. I am telling you to make a commitment. Make a commitment that it may only be one verse. But make a commitment. And this isn't a binding oath that we're not supposed to make before God. This is just a personal commitment that you'll do your best to try to read at least one verse a day. Hopefully you'll read more. But somebody is going to have a hard time selling me on the fact that they don't have time just to open it up and read one verse. One verse. Would you make that commitment with me? To do your best. Just to say, I'm going to start doing it once a day. I'm going to spend time in his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, I do thank you that you speak to us, that you speak to our hearts, that you speak to us through this world, that you speak to us through our church and our brothers and sisters. But I especially thank you that you speak to us through scriptures that have stood the test of time, that are your revelation to us, that reveal to us not only you, but your final word in Jesus. God, I thank you for every person who took time out of their schedule to stay here at church today and to be in this class. And I ask every person in here that you will specially bless them and touch their hearts. Minister to whatever need they have. Lift them up. If no other reason, Lord, help them know that you are their God and you love them and you know them by name. We pray these things through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.